Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, I kind of want to open my own game store. And I have uh, been learning a lot about it along with Matt. <laughs> so keep your eye out for the Tipsy Tolstoy game store coming <laughs> soon to a college town near you. Yes, sir. I am Cameron Lalana, of course. Uh, this week, the Ukrainian culture appreciator. How so? Uh, I, I made Varaniki last night, Ooh. which did take a lot longer than I thought it was going to. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Varaniki with uh, sauerkraut and onions, or excuse me, mushrooms, really hits really hits i've frozen a bunch in different baggies and i've been uh i've been cooking them each morning before i go to work which has been just that's the way to go yeah it's been peak I you're love really it. living out your best sankia role play <laughs> today i was literally like <laughs> i was literally eating the varaniki with like dipping them into sauerkraut <laughs> my sour cream in my car um and i was like this is yeah this is i didn't think this is sankia but it could be could be i think that's kind of like one of sankia's friends he did it at his uh his, uh what grandma's house right something like that i don't i think she made um draniki not varaniki mm. but close enough alas one of the nikis uh <laughs> all right <laughs> well as you've heard so far this is a podcast where me and my good pal cameron get to unwind from our week with some russian literature and a drink or two this week we're going to be reading the second half of Yakina Zulaika. This book, again, won the Yasna Poliana Literary Award and the Big Book Award in 2015. Before we get into our episode, we wanted to plug an upcoming sort of series that we got going on. We're doing our Summer of Anna Karenina, where we're going to be reading one part every other week on the podcast. Uh, We're going to be doing some kind of cool stuff in between. So pick up your copy of Anna Karenina, get cracking, look at our website for the schedule, join our Discord, become part of the Tipsy Tolstoy community, at least for the summer. Maybe longer if you want. And if you are really enjoying the podcast, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We put a lot of work into our tiers and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you are not able to support us financially at the moment, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates, and super excited for the Anna Karina this summer. Uh, Both of us have already gotten cracking on that reading. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt, for the third time now, probably. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's gonna be a good one <laughs> <laughs> yeah me for the first time and uh our episode with ali really whet my appetite for getting into the novel itself cameron is soaking <laughs> <laughs> excited to i'm excited to learn way more about levin <laughs> you are gonna learn way more about him than you ever wanted to learn <laughs> okay well before we get into the actual reading today uh matt what are you drinking i am drinking the lazy man's jack and coke not the, oh well not that the drink is made as a lazy man it just signifies that i was a lazy man and didn't pick up beer this week got it okay <laughs> i thought you're gonna you're gonna tell me you made it with like bottom tier <laughs> vodka and shasta cola or something shasta cola no <laughs> no 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 okay well that's good what are you what are you drinking this week this week i am drinking uh from federation brewing an mm. oakland institution a low boy oatmeal stout uh, which I I love low I I love low boys I love oatmeal stout <laughs> I think that's a that's a I think that's a faction in a Stephen King novel If um, you are a low boy looking for a podcast to support <laughs> <laughs> I love oatmeal stouts and the United States does not love oatmeal stouts so I'm glad that someone is appreciating them so mm-hmm. as it should be Thank you Federation Brewing Yeah mm-hmm. as it should be <laughs> uh, <laughs> Okay well let's 
Uh, let's talk about Zuleika. Before we get into Zuleika, the story, uh, I want to continue my my ranting at you about Soviet history. Please, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this week, we're going to talk about dekulakization. Last week, we mostly covered uh, some of the dynamics of the Great Terror, and I know I spent a long time talking about it, but I want to reiterate uh, the numbers are perhaps not as important as the existence of the mechanisms. The fact that the Soviet Union had the mechanisms it said it did, or perhaps enough to say, wow, that was bad, instead of needing to create, you know, many, many numbers of dead. Now, that being said, this book mostly does not focus on the Great Terror. Of course, it focuses primarily on the process of decoulokization, which happened much earlier than the Great Terror. The book starts in somewhere between 1929 to 1930, uh, which is about the area that we see this policy of decoulokization. Now, first question you may have is, what is a kulak and why are they trying to get rid of them? That's a really hard question to answer because the Soviet policy and at the federal, well not federal, at the state level and at the individual like uh, rayon or region level often differed and that sometimes differed from the popular definition of a, of a kulak. But essentially the Soviet government understood the kulak to be classes of people who um, are among the peasantry who were a little bit more wealthy. Oftentimes they had staff who were producing things for them, and, and those staff uh, had skills which they were using to produce items, which then the you know the kulak in this definition sold for profit. There are various levels of kulaks, from all the way from like counter-revolutionary ones to kind of benign ones, but this is a very technical term. And by the time that you get to the 1929, late 1929, 1930, at which point the the government of the Soviet Union is officially uh, passing plans to, okay, it's time to de-kulak guys. It's time to get rid of this uh, class of people. Many regions are already pursuing these kinds of policies. So it's not a major change, but this is suddenly when you get the like federal, not, I keep saying federal, the state highest level involvement in it. it. It's a very complex process and it really can't be looked at simply as this happened from bottom up or top down. Now, despite the, the official endorsement of this from the very top, it was complicated by the fact that popular understanding of what a kulak was sometimes differentiated. It could be, in the popular understanding, uh, much simpler than the Soviet understanding as someone who merely has money or uh, someone who goes against policy. That was kind of more a, a definition used by regional powers, usually. And as this policy continued, you started running into things where many regional powers began to use this policy of dekulakization, seizing property from kulaks, moving kulaks to collective farms to achieve other goals, such as the need to requisition grain or creating more collectivized farms. So sometimes they'd, you know, kick someone off their land and give that land to a, a collectivized farm, a kokos, as happens in Zuleika. Um, now, this was kind of getting out of hand to the extent that the Soviet government actually kind of steps in and begins to regulate's not exactly the right word, but they began to put in place a more formal policy because since it was happening at the regional level, it was really inconsistent and happening much more violently in some places, much less so in other places. Sometimes it was applied unevenly. Uh, the document, which I will link to in the description of this podcast, <laughs> called it somewhat anarchistic at times. So interesting policy, but that's basically the what was happening in this era, why you even see the well, the story that we're reading even happened. Now, the real thing I want to talk about today is the existence of the so-called fifth column and how that relates to national minorities in the Soviet Union. Now, very early in the Soviet Union, there was an attempt to create socialism for all parties involved. And this was basically called the policy of koronizatsiya, which uh, modified socialist characteristics in the USSR's understanding to specific cultural and ethnic backgrounds. 
Now, by the time you get to Stalin and then the Stalinist government of the 30s, that's not so much a concern anymore. And now what's a much bigger concern is these so-called fifth columnists. And the fifth columnists are um, so-called wreckers or spies, saboteurs, people who are trying to undermine uh, Soviet governance in general. That concept of the, the fifth column, or in the Russian term, um, the Vragi Naroda, the enemy of the people, which itself, that definition of the Vragi Naroda changed over the course of the 20s and 30s, but the basic idea of them as a constant threat, creating kind of a siege mentality in the Soviet government, was pretty consistent. And you, you see this obsession with that in the way that the Soviet government pursued the, the fifth column, which was an outsized feature of the, of the political arrest they made. And oftentimes that was tied to the assertion that the fifth column was, was because their international power is trying to take them down. Now you should understand that Stalin was looking at the world around him and saying he's surrounded by a world of capitalists. So the siege mentality is, is basically coming in that we're surrounded on all sides by enemies who want to take us out. So oftentimes this, this enemy of the people, especially in the 30s, began to be tied to foreign powers, which is why um, over 70% of all espionage arrests between uh, 1935 and 1940 uh, were the, the accused were accused of um, spying for one of only three countries, for Poland, Japan, or Germany. Now, oftentimes when you have this discussion, it's kind of portrayed as, wow, wasn't he paranoid? But the thing was that, yes, the extent to which the Soviet government pursued this was, was absolutely paranoid. The, the arrests of tens of thousands of, of Japanese people, of Polish people, of Latvians, Estonians, etc., etc., was absolutely paranoid. Which is not to say that those countries weren't actually trying to do the things that the Soviet Union accused them of. <laughs> actually, in the pre-war era, Germany and Japan both had very extensive military intelligence networks, which were penetrating the Soviet Union, putting agents in the Soviet Union. Oftentimes, they worked with uh, emigres from the Soviet Union or, or white or, or anti-Bolsheviks. Oftentimes, they worked with just refugees. Uh, the Japan, in particular, actually had pretty extensive a collaboration with a lot of Baltic countries, as well as, um, to some extent, Sweden. In fact, uh, it was uh, Japan had a pretty heavily involvement with the, especially uh, financial involvement with the Finnish military intelligence. Who, of course, uh, if you're familiar at all with the the Russian defeat in the Russo-Finnish War, one of the major features of why the fin the Finns so handily defeated the USSR was because they had a very good cryptography program, which broke the Russian codes very early on. Of course, that was done by the Finns, but they had received no small amount of money from the Japanese, um, which is an interesting little fact of history. And even later allies of the Soviet Union, France and Britain, in the pre-war era saw the USSR, even during the war, as a threat, but even more so before the war. So they were actually making plans to especially target vital regions in Russia or and were working with many um, minority groups within or around the USSR in order to begin to target these things. Now, there are only so many groups who various nations were trying to work with. So one of the problems that that landed them in was that oftentimes some groups were, were working with or at least contacted by multiple nations. I'm going to quote from the article I was reading here. With so many competing nations recruiting from the same base, intrigues and plots abounded. And so too did the ease with which Soviet intelligence penetrated these various foreign plots. There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the USSR was actually quite heavily infiltrated into many of these groups of, of the Japanese, the Germans, the British. So they were actually well aware of the realities of this. Now, the infiltrators and saboteurs they were training and sending in was more so a matter of hundreds of people rather than tens of thousands, as I've, as I've said before. But certainly the, the fact of 
uh, countries around the USSR trying to undermine it was actually very true. In fact, it was sometimes even more true than the highest level. You might expect the highest leadership to exist. In fact, the military intelligence suggested to the high leadership of the Communist Party that uh, Hitler intended to betray them and invade them in Operation Barbarossa quite early on and quite often. Um, and Stalin, and who was at that point quite determined to follow a diplomatic path, uh, was, was actually quite reje rejected many of these reports. In fact, in one instance, Stalin wrote on a report from an agent who said that uh, Germany was planning to invade Russia. <laughs> he wrote, you can tell your source in the headquarters of the German Air Force to go fuck his mother. He's a disinformation <laughs> agent. <laughs> I'm going to put that one up on the board for uh, tweets that age poorly, Alex. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that led into the creation of the main directorate for the struggle against banditry, or as it's the unfortunate acronym in English goes, GUB, G-U-B-B. Which, <laughs> which is formed for the struggle against banditry, which performs an essential part of the NKVD training. And as I as I stressed earlier about this idea of foreign powers trying to undermine Soviet power, this this idea of banditry, which eventually comes to be understood as the main internal security threat of the Soviet Union, and the definition of banditry often basically transforms what was earlier understood as uh, as like diaspora elements of of many Chechen Ingushetians. Um, Tartar people. There's a lot of ethnic groups in this Soviet empire. It, it turns minor diaspora elements into bandit nations. And I'll, I'll post the definitions. It's quite a long list. But basically, it takes minority movements who were often uh, somewhat were not well represented in the Soviet governance because they were not so politically inclined. They were not conscious, to use the Soviet terms. Uh, they were transformed into basically uh, elements against the state, which was then reflecting how the Soviet government treated them, which in turn led them to become more actively anti-state, thus completing the prophecy. It has been fulfilled. Yeah. <laughs> so that is why, if you're wondering, so like, why why are there are there troops out here in the middle of nowhere, uh, like taking land from these, like <laughs> killing random people and taking land from them? That that's basically why. Um, I, I, on one level, it's because there was somewhat uneven application of policy. There was oftentimes the application of policy wrong in order to fulfill other requirements oftentimes it might be that the training and i don't think that's the case in this book but some people are looking at ethnic minorities as security threats because they're uh not engaging with the soviet empire they're they're rather engaging with their own communities at a non-political level etc cetera, etc cetera. so that's some of the thinking that's going on in this era i i'm gonna do a sort of broad stroke summary on the second half because it's quite long and i think Okay, so ever since you said that this was intended to be a screenplay originally, I cannot get that out of my head because I can just picture that you could take, like, you could handpick a couple scenes from each part of this book and you would have a phenomenal film. And then you could go back and you could handpick a couple different ones and you could still have an equally phenomenal film. Like, there's like a lot of really good individual events that happen, a lot of good descriptors. So I will. I will do my best. Yes. Uh, where, where did we leave off? Well, we left off in perhaps the worst situation known to man. <laughs> well, I guess not totally because they're they're alive at this point. But Known to Ignatov specifically. The rest of them <laughs> have already gone through it, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So Zuleika has been plucked up from her home in the name of decolacization. Her husband, Murtaza, has been shot by Ignatov. Uh, and in a, a twist of fate, he has kind of acted as her protector in a way. Uh, on, on the long journey to Siberia, which is where he's taking them all to establish some sort of kulak colony, if you will. If I can break in for a moment, it's yeah. perhaps worth noting. I don't. This is a minor feature of the last for the first half of the story, but um, there is a point at which there's a prison break on the train when they're traveling for months on end. 
uh, to which Zuleika is a witness, but she chooses not to leave. Uh, later on, Ignatov goes out on a branch for her and defends her and says she doesn't know anything, even though the the secret police, I think it's supposed to be the NKV, but it's not really said explicitly, yeah, no. want to take her. Basically, they're saying, kind of nudging me, like, we'll, we'll get her, we'll torture her and get her to admit and we'll take her away. And Ignatov goes out on a branch and, and protects her to their dismay. Mm -hmm. And so he's kind of, like you said, taken on the role of protector, not only in actually getting the prisoners food, although that's not so much a humanitarian thing as a I have a duty kind of thing, but he does show some humanity and as he begins to spend more time with the prisoners. Yeah, he shows uh, ju just an ounce more humanity than is <laughs> required to get them there alive, I think. Um, well, particularly towards Zuleika. And, and we'll get into that more in the second half, I suppose. But yes, so, you know, they're almost, they're almost there. They're on a ship. It sinks. That sucks. Uh, they all almost drown. Fortunately, some of them are able to, to get out of there alive. That Zuleika uh, does, and Ignatov does, and then there are some more characters that come into play. Uh, they're just kind of in the middle of this <laughs> this forest, just not a great situation. So everyone is, the, the 30 that have survived this absolute catastrophe of a trip are washed up onto the shore of where they're now going to settle. Zuleika is pregnant, super confused, having never left her hometown. Her like one house is now just thrust out into this world, forced to try to survive. And that's kind of where we pick up in part three. So part three is really the survival story, I would say. <laughs> like survival simulation, the resource management simulation, uh, if you will, uh, in which everyone that is washed up on shore, people who don't really have skills of, hey, I'm, I need to survive for an extended period of time until help can come, are put together and forced to do exactly that. Although they don't know that it's going to take that, uh, Ignatov kind of thinks that Kuznets is going to come and rescue them fairly soon. And so that leads to a, probably the worst situation in the world uh, in which they do not <laughs> adequately start preparing for winter in time as as we as we see winter is always very difficult in siberia and there's really almost no time to prepare even as this kind of goes on in the future where people really survive very well in the winter they, they cite that frequently a quarter to a third of their whole population uh can can get killed off each winter uh so that's kind of that's kind of the the first part the establishing shots uh, Ignatov going through all the prisoners, commenting on the different ways that they've ended up here. The part directly after that is where Zuleika uh, actually gives birth. Dr. Liba is the one who helps deliver the baby, and that kind of uh, cements their bond to each other. He will come to play a very important role in helping the child as he grows up and has, has like seizures and medical issues growing up, so he's always mm. kind of there to help him. And uh, the people in the... Settlement are actually pretty nice to Zuleika. She's on cooking cooking duty. The way that they attempt to survive this winter is just building an underground house for all of them to basically huddle up in. And it doesn't it doesn't go super great, as you can imagine. They all kind of survive, but Zuleika comments that she notices that she's she's unable to breastfeed many times just because of how malnourished everyone is. She notices her baby's growing weak, uh, but he he ultimately survives. They make it to the, their first winter, and it's 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 not great. Just barely. Just bar I mean, they really just barely eked it out, but they did. It gets down to the point where Zuleika, who is just completely out of milk, starts feeding her son her own blood. Yes. 
which I told a friend of mine who actually knows things about biology and said she said that would actually seriously screw up the kids' developmental stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, oh, is life. <laughs> don't feed your kid blood, I guess, is the message I got from that conversation, which changes some of my plans, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Vampire child. Uh, I'm not, I can't. I'm not liberty to say. <laughs> OK, so uh, spring arrives and Kuznets makes it back, kind of saying that they just they got really busy with all the kulaks that they had to move. And honestly, he didn't really think they were going to make it. So he was kind of like, why am I going to drive my boat all the way down here? But hey, nice to see you. Uh, <laughs> and he has to kind <laughs> of mend the relationship that he had with Ignatov, who was still really furious with him for a number of reasons. But one of the things that Ignatov has to come to terms with in his story arc is the fact that he cannot go back to Kazan afterwards. He comes to terms with the fact that his old boss sent him on this mission as a way to escape basically being executed. And Kuznet says, oh yeah, that's that's right. There's a lot of stuff going on in the papers about your old boss and your old department. And Ignatov's like, you know, I don't believe that. That's That's ridiculous. And he's like, you know what? I will bring you a newspaper that says it. And he eventually does and ignatov has to kind of reconcile with the fact that he just he has no place in soviet society he has this village that he oversees and he is just a grumpy grumpy man so as the the settlement kind of gets some help from kuznets they're able to establish uh, actual houses things that are not just an underground kind of makeshift shelter and they're able to establish more buildings they have an actual medical sort of facility to a degree as best they can and that's where leva ends up working and is very successful and there's kind of this whole chapter that gets into his history and psychology and the metaphorical egg that he has uh, around him that's shielding him from reality i personally don't think that leva's chapters are as strong as Zuleika's, um but that's that's just me uh he is an incredibly helpful character like i said to zuleika trying to help her at just about any point that he can and zuleika herself is maturing and learning how to adapt to the situation she is realizing that the vampire hag may have been wrong she has a child that did not die she actually starts to think that god can't see her because siberia is like so far away so she is less into things like like forest spirits and she doesn't pray as frequently and she has lapses in in thought in like moral code i guess and she she starts to become actually interested in actually starts to catch the attention of ignatov and she kind of has has some feelings about it that are not completely negative just definitely conflicted and there's this point pretty, where... Pretty unique for the man who killed your husband, I would say. Although, I mean, she didn't have that much love for her husband, just kind of practicality about it. So maybe mm-hmm. a bit different, I suppose. It's still... <laughs> I, I, still I can understand the confliction, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> he killed my husband, but he is hot. But, I mean, he's pretty cute. I mean... <laughs> I mean... Yeah. So she's she's out in the forest. I think she's picking berries one day, and Ignatov starts to come on to her. In a, a stroke of luck, if you'd call it that, uh, a bear sneaks up on them and fortunately for Zuleika she had uh, picked up Ignatov's rifle and aimed it at him uh, in an attempt to 
get him to back up good for her uh but now her baby is off to the side about to be mauled by this bear i'm just trying to picture the scene it's absolutely crazy and she just absolutely snipers this bear and Aethel's like, you're a great hunter. Well, not exactly, but that's the moral of the story. He's actually, he actually says exactly, you're a uh, pro gamer. You're uh, a pro gamer. And- <laughs> it's like, she basically, I mean, she was like number one's high score in that, like, in those CD bars that would have like the, I don't remember what it was, like those big game hunter games. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cabello's big game hunter. <laughs> yep. She was number one. <laughs> <laughs> so Zalika gets to gets to become a, a hunter actually and she gets to go out and just kind of hunt which is a really privileged position to have because you get to go just kind of unaccounted for in in the forest for long periods of time which is pretty sweet for a basically prison camp i would say getting a gun and being allowed to go wherever you want is, yeah, is a yeah. really good deal for being in a prison camp no it's definitely not bad but th- this relationship between her and, and ignatov starts to bloom if you will and there's, you know, several more encounters and whatnot. And eventually she, she does go to him and they do have a relatively prolonged relationship. And she's kind of like, you know what, you know, I'm, you know, I'm doing it good for me. And she she confronts her, her vision of the vampire hag telling her, look, it, you know, I've done this and nothing has happened. And then immediately after that, something happens. And and she goes home and her son who, who at this point is probably about seven. He's he's aged a lot. And her son is missing. And she, she knows that her son sometimes... Um, her son sometimes goes out and looks for her. If she takes a long time getting back, she was going and she was actually sleeping with Ignatov. That's where she was. She wasn't out gathering berries or hunting or anything. Uh, so she takes out her, her skis, her snowshoes, and she's following her son's tracks to where he would go to meet her. And she's... She's noticing, like, the tracks are kind of getting lighter and it's, you know, it's kind of snowing and it's hard to see... And her son was about to be attacked by wolves because she comes up on this pack of wolves and and she 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 goes in there and she takes the pistol that she took from Ignatov's place after having sex with him and she takes out like a whole pack of wolves, like six, seven wolves. She's like reloading. It's like an absolute action scene right there. This would have been a great one to be adapted. This would be right in the trailer. I want Zuleika to be in the next John Wick film. So like a big game hunter. <laughs> it was good. Um, well, not so great for her son, who at this point has like hypothermia. Yeah, he he wasn't he wasn't mauled by the wolves, and he it takes him like several days to to wake up. He's being treated by Doctor Liba, and that's when Zalika kind of breaks it off for Ignatov and says, "You know what? This is hey, look at this. I'm I'm being punished. This can't continue to go on." So that is the end of that relationship. Ignatov kind of just goes downhill at that point he's just old so yusuf her son as he starts to grow up he becomes friends with the what has become the kind of local painter ikonikov and he basically has he has the the moment that everyone has which um he says to Zalika, no i don't want to study with liba and become a doctor i want to be an artist and everyone says what and it it causes a little bit of a little bit of conflict to say the least growing up in like the bay area telling your parents that causes some consternation mm-hmm. telling your parents that in a prison camp in siberia yes. Yes. a little bit more but a universal experience perhaps yeah i guess so <laughs> probably <laughs> i guess so <laughs> uh that's a really quick wrap-up of Yusuf's story arc but that's gonna have to suffice for now and it sets up what is basically his primary conflict when we get into part four which is much shorter it's only two chapters 
Uh, the first one is called The War, and it describes the effects of World War II on the Siberian settlements, which at first was basically non-existent. They just get news from Kuznets hearing about things, and they're not really sure whether to believe him or not. And honestly, they don't really care because they know they're not going to get drafted because they're all prisoners and people that are couldn't be trustworthy to uh, have guns to go hunting for animals. So why would you send them uh, to be fighting fascists who the government thinks they're going to side with? That's their logic anyways. And eventually, of course, the war gets really bad and many of them do have to go fight. The two that have to go fight are Ikonikov and Gorolov. And Gorolov, uh, to this point, we haven't really mentioned very much. He is basically just gunning for Ignatov's job. He's just the absolute worst he's the camp bootlicker mm-hmm. he's literally described as that with that term like several times in the book <laughs> yeah. so he he has to go and that's that's gorlov no one really cares about him but ikonikov that's that's pretty sad uh, particularly for yusuf because after ikonikov leaves he leaves his kind of artist workshop to him to fulfill which is a pretty tall order for a 12 year old but he, he does a good job and after a couple of years, he kind of decides that he doesn't want to continue living in the settlement. He wants to go to he wants to go to art school. So Zuleika is understandably quite quite hurt by the thought of her son leaving her, and also it's not a real possibility because he doesn't have any uh, he doesn't have access to any of his documents, which are under lock and key in Ignatov's office. Uh, but Ignatov kind of recognizing that he is about to be ousted because he doesn't care about his job and Zuleika uh, directly asking him, hey, can you um, give my son uh, his documents so he can go to art school? After he is actually fired by Kuznets, who he's had a falling out with, he burns just all the camp documents and he rewrites Yusuf's birth certificate listing himself as the father. Therefore making Yusuf uh, Zuleika's son, a quote-unquote legitimate person in mm-hmm. the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. and that he was not the son of a kulak. He's the son of a Soviet officer, which, for what it's worth, is better than yes. the truth. Uh, and so there's just this really emotional scene where they, they all come together to help Yusuf go and, and, pursue, <laughs> and pursue this dream. Kind of a long shot, but he is he, he's going with the money that Ignatov gave him and a legitimate birth, well, an illegitimate legitimate birth certificate at this point. And uh, Gorolov, who has come back, has taken over the camp. Uh, the camp really sucks now. Uh, I I don't know. It's it's a really sad ending. It's interesting. I do you mind if I read the last lines of the book? Because I thought it really kind of yeah. Please. <clears throat> so after Yusuf leaves, uh, we're kind of we go from being writing primarily in in past uh, in present tense, as most of the book is, to kind of a future tense of like what may happen implying that we are we are in the moment of use of leaving and the rest is kind of him imagining forward but i think it's kind of implied to be the actuality of, of what really happens do you like of seeing her son off begins to slowly walk away having uh seen him vanish into the distance and zuleika will plod off eating neither time nor the path trying not to breathe so she won't increase the pain at round clearing she'll notice a person grayed limping with a stick walking toward her. She and Ignatov will catch sight of one another and stop. He on one edge of the clearing, and she on the other. He will realize suddenly how much she's aged. Eyes that have lost their sharp sight will not be able to discern the wrinkles on Zuleika's face or the gray in her hair. And she will sense that while the pain that fills her world hasn't gone, it has allowed her to breathe. The ending of this book was really difficult for me, I gotta say. Oh yeah, this was like, when I hit that last chapter, I was like, oh, I gotta sit down and just like... 
Ooh, deep breath for a couple minutes. Yeah, I know. Matt was texting <laughs> me when this was happening, I think. So I was like, it's a long bit, Yusuf deciding to leave. And he's kind of hiding it from his mother. And she finds out after Ikonikov, who everyone has assumed his dad, has sent a Yusuf a kind of a secret letter and, and inviting him to come to Leningrad. Um, and he, he decides to go and his mother finds. And she her whole life up to this point has been for him, really. So she freaks out. And it's just like such a long moment of her coming to terms with the fact that her son is a person and and will go do his own things and that's not going to include her and she lets him go and it's such like a painful raw moment that i had to I, it sounds like you two ought to just like sit back and just stare at the ceiling for a <laughs> it's while. a book that'll make you call your mother basically yeah that's i think that's that's <laughs> what i did after i read this i don't think i mentioned to my mom because i didn't want to say hey um i read a russian book about a, a kid in, in the stalinist gulag camps and that made me think of you uh <laughs> touching thank you cameron <laughs> Zuleika is not one of, the, I guess, the deeper books we've read, but it's one that stayed with me a lot more than some of the deeper ones, to be honest, just because the human themes of it are just really interesting to play around with. It comes and goes for me. What, what was your reaction once you, because you, you were, you finished it recently. Yeah, I just, I finished it not too long ago. My reaction is that the middle was just a little too long. I find I found that on a structural level, I didn't really care about a lot of the side characters who were introduced, and, and I felt that the writing was a lot weaker when they stepped outside of Zuleika's personality. That was my personal opinion of it. That being said, I think the Zuleika scenes absolutely make it worth reading. I think that it's it's an interesting genre to read contemporary fiction set in the Soviet Union, uh, and I think that just overall, it was a great book that I liked reading even if i do have some mild criticism of it i don't know if you I, I i noticed when we were talking earlier you you mentioned that you had liked some of the other side characters and you had some more interesting takeaways than me for me i was like oh my god just please <laughs> let them stop talking yeah i mean they don't have as obvious features i mean they really do feel like i know we've kind of hammered home this point a lot but side characters in a movie uh, because other than ikonikov you have, you have um Isabella and Constantine, who were a married couple from St. Petersburg, and they're very kind of bourgeois. Isabella is French. Constantine is very well learned, and they're they just sit around like to debate, and they're really are not good at survival, but they they do their they're best. They're podcasters of this group. They're us of this group, um, <laughs> and I think I think that they're important because they really begin to form Yusuf's worldview. Because Zuleika is a very practical person down to her bones. Everything she's done, she's done for a purpose, either because it, it was whatever was expected of her in her life uh, before she was arrested or because she needed to survive after she was brought onto this journey. Um, but the kind of, I guess you could call it like a bourgeois sensibility of pursuing things because that, it's what you want, not because there's any greater need to your community or to your class. That's kind of, to me, instilled in Yusuf by Isabella and Constantine and, and largely by Ikonikov. You can see in that the way that, that they really kind of adopt him. He becomes kind of like the, the child of not just Zuleika, who he's very attached to, but also the child of Isabella and Constantine and Ikonikov. Ikonikov teaches him art. Isabella teaches him uh, French. Constantine just lectures at him. <laughs> the only person he's not attached to is, interestingly enough, uh, Wolf. Uh, Wolf, who uh, up to this point, since most of the book basically in just complete delusion, and the only thing that brings him out of delusion is Yusuf, basically. He he comes out briefly to tell Zuleika she's pregnant and later to deliver the baby. Those are the only moments that he's lucid up to that point. And later on, he kind of fully emerges from his egg and realizes what's going on and is finally able to recognize reality. 
and always wants to to like he has this attachment to Yusuf and nothing hurts him more than the fact that Yusuf is is almost completely uninterested in him and I think that's such an interesting thing that Yusuf is is the catalyst for his return to reality and also the fact the reason that he honestly Yusuf causes him the most emotional pain in the in the book and eventually after after a while he chooses to leave the settlement to go help he realizes that other people need his help and it's there's nothing left for him here even after he spent so many years with them. Matt and I have debated at a certain point in the book. Zuleika claims to marry um, Wolf because she and Wolf live together, and she thinks that she's being published for living with a man while unmarried. It's not real clear whether or not she actually marries him, but this has been his whole life up to that point. And I think it's an interesting character arc that Yusuf is attached to everyone who's kind of bourgeois and is not attached to Zuleika, his mother. Well, well, not attached to her enough to stay with her, and not attached to Wolf, who only does the practical work of a doctor. So I wanted, I wanted to talk about an interesting connection that kind of happens later on in the book between storytelling and reality, where you have the village of, of the present camp they're living in, which is named Simruk, which represents the seven hands, which built it initially before everyone else comes to it and makes it a bigger camp. And you also have the story of the, of the Simrug. And in English, they're, they're different. You've got the Simruk, seven hands, and Simrug, the bird. But in Russian, they're pronounced basically the same, Simruk and Simruk, because... In Russian, if you end a word on G, it becomes a K because Russian's an anarchic language with, with no rules. Uh, but well, there are rules, but you don't get to understand them. You don't specifically <laughs> don't get to understand them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why I am where I am with my language learning. Us peasants couldn't understand. The <laughs> Simruk. <laughs> uh, the story is of of a bird, basically, like the perfect bird who every other bird has a question for. And this great mass of birds needs to go to the Simruk to, to, or the Shah bird to understand something. And they all travel through these great many quests. And they travel through low valleys and high mountains. And many of them get caught up in temptation on the way. And finally, you have basically just a handful of these birds left who have survived this journey to this point. And they get to the end. And uh, let me let me <clears throat> just read from the story itself. The birds realized they had reached Simruk's dwelling place, and they felt his approach through the glowing great gladness in their hearts. Their eyes squinted from the bright light that filled the world, and when they opened them, they saw only one another. In that instant, they grasped the essence, that they were all Simruk, each individually and all of them together. Think about it. <laughs> just conceive, it's just like... think. Drop some LSD and think about it. I mean, for me, this was kind of the, the point in the story where obviously it continues after this, especially with Yusuf's story with his mother. But really, we get to the point of, of what Guzel Yahina is kind of telling us in that we have a group of people searching for a truth and realize eventually that that truth is not found in some power above them, but in their community with each other. In the friends we made along the way. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. <laughs> The real truth of existence was the friends we made along the way. Camus shaking in his <laughs> boots. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I liked I liked the the storytelling. I'd liked there were a lot of really interesting things structurally like this that happened in the second half of the book. And one of the ones that I liked a lot was watching Yusuf grow up and getting a parallel plot line to kind of watching Zuleika both grow up and go through this incredibly traumatic experience throughout the book uh where <laughs> like there there are several points where Zuleika is telling Yusuf about uh her her old life in Yulbash and talking about the different animals that were there 
and because they have no animals, because they're a quite poor Siberian settlement, uh, Yusuf has never seen like cows and goats, and the first time that he sees them are through Ikonikov's drawings, which give him a really interesting perspective on life, I would imagine, when some of the more basic things that we take for granted every day are actually transformed into these kind of, not mythical, but like, I don't know, they're just otherworldly because they're not something that you interact with at all. And so you get like something something very interesting with someone who's like kind of schooled into the Soviet kind of sort of way in the settlements. Plus, as Cameron has mentioned, all of the people that are around him, helping him learn and grow, not just in school, but like languages and art and whatnot. Uh, and so he has just a, a very different experience by by so many different standards than Zuleika did. I, I have a question for you. I was wondering how you saw Ignatov's character arc, because obviously he begins the book uh, shooting Zuleika's husband um, and ends the book kind of stare after after many intermittent love affairs staring at uh, a much older, and of course he is, himself is also much older, Zuleika, as they stand across a clearing from each other recognizing the agedness of the other so actually i think well i i will just say this on on the ending if you notice he 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 does at one point mention a couple times how much zuleika has aged but he at the very end finally notices how much he's aged and it says that his eyes because of their lost eyesight he's unable to see how much zuleika has aged and like the wrinkles on her face and whatnot and so in my mind that's like he's kind of seeing her like not younger but i don't know i i thought it was a, a little bit optimistic at the end the actual realization of yourself and there's this there's this one kind of actually quite major plot point that we didn't discuss during the summary which is pretty critical to his arc uh, which is when kuznets during the probably height of the purges says you know what this <laughs> this is the time that we need to make our move we're gonna say there's a hundred saboteurs in the camp uh we're gonna shoot them all uh and then we are going to get promoted and Ignatov is like, what are you like? He thinks he's joking. Uh, and I think a little part of him thought he was right. Wanted him to be joking. He says like, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's what causes the falling out between Ignatov and Kuznets. And that is the turning point for Ignatov. Because I think if you gave that that same officer the opportunity to do that at the beginning of the book, 100% he's going to do that. He becomes actually quite a dynamic character throughout his his time as the leader of, of the settlement. And I think as a, as a whole, he has a, a, a good-ish story arc. I mean, he ends up relinquishing his power because he doesn't want it anywhere. He doesn't want to be... He wants to support other people in his community, but he doesn't want to be the one in charge of them, I don't think. Yeah, I find Ignatov as a character fascinating. Ignatov is interesting because he's not a good person. No, no. He is a bad person who is, and that's why I think he's interesting, uh, because um, there, there's a line from a novel I really like, In the Lake of the Woods. It ends on this line. Can we believe that he was not a monster, but a man? That he was innocent of everything except for his life? Um, which kind of rings true for me with Ignatov, and that he, as you've said, is not a good man. Mm -hmm. Through it all, despite not being a good person, he makes interesting decisions yes. despite being self-absorbed it's been the first half of the book obsessed with i need to break up with my girlfriend because i caught i'm sleeping with this much hotter <laughs> woman and oh woe is me i just have such a hard life sleeping with such a hot woman that i have to break up with my girlfriend <laughs> and, <laughs> and then it gets sent down this this rabbit hole of needing to escape from his own organization 
because they're out to, to get him for his associations. And he ends up in a spiral of just, he, he's just obsessed with, with waiting for Kuznets' next visit after he uh, you know arrives at this camp and he's just always drunk. And there's a moment when Isabella is kind of looking off at him and someone says something about him as a, an unfit leader. And she says, no, no, he's, he's a fit leader uh, and he's a good man. He's just troubled. And when I first read that, I kind of rolled my eyes. Um, and I still do. Um, but I think it, there is something interesting about a character who is just such a relentless piece of shit who simultaneously is, he, he cannot lose his humanity and that he does, he does step out on a limb for Zuleika and he continues to have human emotions. And I'm not saying he's a good person. I don't think he is. But the fact that he just kind of has this like nascent uh, humanity just kind of getting him to protect these people time and again, especially as you've mentioned from Kuznets in the end, which costs him his job. Um, makes him such an interesting character to me. Yeah, you're not really ever rooting for him. You're rooting for him to do like certain things that are just not horrible at times. That's why I said like what I said his character arc is good-ish. Like it is a well-written arc that I enjoyed reading. I did, I don't want to imply that like I, I was rooting. Uh, like I liked a lot of the things he was doing because I didn't. Yeah, but that's why he's an yeah. interesting character because he's not he's not a good guy out to do the right thing. He's uh, he's a selfish person out to protect himself, and incidentally, he happens to do things that protects all the people under his care. Oh, one last thing I wanted to mention. Uh, if if you wanted the Shawbird chapter, the, the story of Simruk, um, if you wanted to, to hit it home anymore about how much Guzel Yakina wants you to focus on this, the, in, in Russian, the title of this book is uh, Zuleika Opens Her Eyes, uh, and the first <laughs> words of the chapter of the Shawbird, which is about the story of Simruk, um, are, is the sentence, Zuleika Opens Her Eyes. So, um, I think she was trying to transmit some message to you there. Not certain what. Uh, <laughs> yes, there's there's obviously a lot to talk about with Zuleika. There's a lot. I, I enjoyed this book a lot. A lot of interesting character arcs, especially because not everyone is a good person. It's just a good book. Like, honestly, you should read it. And also, not only is it a good book, but Lisa Hayden did a phenomenal job translating this. This, I cannot imagine, was easy to translate. Uh, but I... Uh, I found it a good read in English as well. Shout outs where they do. <laughs> well, uh, and Lisa Hayden come on the podcast. <laughs> Honestly. Um. Uh, well, before we wrap up, Cameron, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you right now? Okay. Well, I, I have to admit, after I after I finished up my beer, I, I went to the next drink mm. in the house, which uh, was not a great selection. So all I had was a, a good swig of um, 100 proof vodka. So I'm at a good... I'm at a good six absolutely. or seven. I got to. I'm like later in the book, Ignatov just absolutely blasted on berry vodka for like most <laughs> of the book. I feel like this must be what he felt like from day to day. I think. Uh, how about you, Matt? Oh, unfortunately, kind of low because I couldn't stop myself from talking long enough to, <laughs> to drink more. Because <laughs> uh, I had so much to say about this in not enough time. <laughs> You should have you should have done what I did, which is stop both of us from talking, just so we can make you listen to me drinking my vodka. I, but I respect that, you know, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, uh, this was a lot of fun. But looking forward, what are we reading next week? Next week we are going to be getting into some Chekhov. We're going to be reading the Lady with the Dog. So that's our, our first short story by him that we've we've read. It, it's going to be a good one. Can you believe we're over 20 episodes into this podcast and we have not once read Chekhov? I feel like that sometimes, but there are so many demands on what to read. People are like, oh, you should read this, you yeah. should read more of this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, but like, there are so many authors that we have to read. 
And also, no, yeah. how do you think I'm going to fit an entire Dostoevsky novel into one single hour long episode? <laughs> I would have to like I would have to do like a 24 hour long episode, <laughs> which we just might <laughs> keep a lookout for that. Keep, one. A look <laughs> keep a lookout for our mental breakdown in that episode <laughs> comes at around hour 13, 14. Uh, well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons, Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Paige, Darren, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Whew. You can still do it in one breath. I know, just barely. <laughs> Podcasting isn't free <laughs> and grad school really does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running and reward us for reward us for our efforts take a look at our patreon at patreon.com slash tipsy the music used in this episode was soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast or join our email list on our website tipsy tolstoy.com you'll hear from us again soon